You're listening to Washington Post Live's First Look Podcast with Jonathan Capehart. Welcome to First Look, Washington Post Live's one-stop shop for news and analysis. I'm Jonathan Capehart, Associate Editor at The Washington Post. House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy is real confident that Republicans will retake the majority, and he's doing a lot of talking about what Republicans, what, what Republican rule could look like. Eugene Scott is a national political reporter for The Washington Post, and he joins me now. Eugene, welcome to First Look. Thanks for having me. So um, you wrote this week uh, that Minority Leader McCarthy is signaling that continued aid to Ukraine will likely be significantly curtailed if Republicans retake the majority. Uh, His words were, Ukraine would not get, quote, a blank check. What's McCarthy's thinking here? Well, McCarthy is arguing that voters uh, who send Republicans to the House, and he's assuming that Republicans win the House, uh, do not want Ukraine uh, to be a priority when it comes to funding. He instead, of course, believes that those voters would like to see uh, lawmakers focus on more domestic issues like border and, uh, and you know, inflation and, and some of the uh, topics that Republicans are campaigning on. So, you know, Eugene, I mean, Leader McCarthy is so confident. He isn't just talking about reclaiming the House. Here's what he said this week. It makes a big difference if we have the House and the Senate. So if we have the House and the Senate, we can use the Congressional Review Act. We can go after that regulations that he's proposed in a timeline that created inflation as well. Repeal that with a simple 51. We would have reconciliation so we can guarantee to put it on his desk. So again, as I started out this conversation, you know, the minority leader is really confident about uh, Republicans' chances in the House. But the fact that he's talking about Republicans retaking the majority in the Senate and what that might look like uh, on the on the Hill, I don't know. Does it seem like Republicans are measuring the drapes before the people even had a chance to vote? Perhaps, but I think what he was really doing in that situation was trying to make a case for Republicans to encourage people to vote for uh, Republicans, making some promises of what could happen if uh, the GOP is in control of both the House and the Senate. I think something to pay attention to, as much as Republicans have criticized the Biden administration and Democrats about inflation, they have proposed no plan. Uh, that seems to tackle the issue that they believe is the most important issue to voters. And so uh, I think one thing that a lot of people will be paying attention to is not just how they are, you know, trying to block the Biden agenda, but what agenda will they be putting forward uh, beyond, you know, just being oppositional. Mm -hmm. And speaking of agenda and being oppositional, uh, something else uh, Leader McCarthy will have to contend with uh, if they retake the House majority is the thirst for impeachment. Of course, President Biden has been talked about, but so have um, Secretary Mayorkas of the Department of Homeland Security and even Attorney General Merrick Garland. How likely is it that a new Republican majority would skip the president for Mayorkas or for uh, Attorney General Garland? Well, I don't know if the appetite uh, in the House uh, among Republicans is strong enough uh, to skip Biden. Most of the conversation we've heard is directed towards Biden, and it's actually coming from, you know, the most far right of Republicans. And so uh, if Republicans do win the House, we can expect conversations about impeachment to happen. Whether or not that'll actually go forward is not 
not yet clear because we know that not all Republicans are coming from districts uh, with voters that are backing, you know, the most far right lawmakers. Mm -hmm. um, President Biden um, this week has said that if Republicans control Congress, quote, um, uh, abortion will be banned. How much traction would Senator Lindsey Graham's abortion ban have in a Republican controlled Congress? He, he introduced a bill to have a, a ban on abortions after 15 weeks. But the way Congress works in the new Congress, the 118th Congress, he's going to have to reintroduce that bill in the Senate. But is there the appetite in the House to follow his lead? There's the appetite among the most far right. I mean, the reality is we haven't seen some of the more moderate Republicans and, and many of the women come out and express support for uh, the ban that Graham has proposed. It just hasn't gotten a lot of traction, um, even among his fellow lawmakers in the Senate. And so uh, we can trust that he'll try to move it forward and keep it uh, before the public. But the polls are saying that this is not something that most voters back. And so the idea that lawmakers are going to move forward with it, given its unpopularity, um, it's not something I would bet on at this point, but things could change. You know, I'm, I'm curious about something. A few weeks back, um, Minority Leader McCarthy presented to the American people the commitment to America that had a lot of broad agenda items, no, no real specifics. But I haven't really heard much about it since then. Was that just a PR stunt? Or are Republican candidates running on commitment to America? Well, to your point, uh, it's hard to run on it when there's not any clear policy proposals. I mean, the commitment to America, for the most part, is to be opposed to Democrats and Biden. And that's what Republicans were even before McCarthy announced this and put this forward. And so it wasn't anything that seemed particularly newsworthy. So it was hard for it to maintain uh, popularity and interest uh, and, and maintain headlines because it, it wasn't new, but it is something that is very popular with the base of the GOP, but whether or not you can move forward with just the support of the base, uh, it, it remains to be seen, but it's highly unlikely, especially in some of these particular contests. And one more question for you, uh, Eugene, before I let you go. You know, the, the Post had ran a big story, Amy Gardner's story, about the number of election deniers who are on the ballot across the, <clears throat> excuse me, across the country. Um, if Republicans retake the House majority and um, minority leader Kevin McCarthy becomes Speaker Kevin McCarthy, through your reporting, are you getting the sense that McCarthy's leadership team is prepared for the, the kind of majority he could possibly have in the 118th Congress. And I'm thinking of former Speaker John Boehner and how hard, difficult it was for him when he became Speaker with the Tea Party contingent that came in in 2010. Well, you would think so, because McCarthy's been here for a while, and this this pro-Trump, uh, anti-Biden uh, conspiracy theory about the 2020 election, it's in a new idea. So he's familiar with it, not just from supporters, but from colleagues. And he's keeping his eye on the individuals who are running for seats and who are more likely to win and uh, then lose, and, and doing his calculations about what his team could look like. So if he's not prepared, it won't be because he hasn't had the experience and information I think Republican lawmakers and voters have made it clear repeatedly where they stand on the 2020 election, and McCarthy should know that.
Eugene Scott, Washington Post national political reporter. Thank you for coming to First Look. Have a great weekend. You as well. I'm going to keep the conversation going with the Opinions Roundtable in just a moment. Let's go to the opinion side of the Washington Post, where we will find Washington Post columnists E.J. Dion and George Will. E.J., George, welcome back to First Look. Good to be with you. All right, let's, this whole conversation is going to be about the midterms. E.J., we've got two and a half weeks to go until Election Day. Are the Republicans overconfident about their prospects? for regaining the majority in the House and the Senate? Yeah, I think they are overconfident, perhaps just as Democrats uh, were prematurely elated when they surged ahead in the summer. I think this is a very, very tight race. I think the polling, by the way, is very difficult in this election because you've had these huge surges in turnout over the last of three elections, and so pollsters are having trouble figuring out who's going to vote this time. We don't know what turnout uh, is going to look like. But I also think that overconfidence goes to what you were talking to Eugene about. Um, If you sort of think you're going to win and the game isn't over yet, you get lazy. And I think that some of the things uh, 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 Kevin McCarthy is saying are quite dangerous to their victory, he and others in the Republican leadership. This talk about, well, I'm gonna be tougher on aid to Ukraine. Uh, Americans overwhelmingly support Ukraine's fight against Russian aggression. I don't think Ukraine is a voting issue, but I think a lot of Republicans are gonna be disturbed by that. But even more, they are talking openly about shutting down the government uh, to rein in or cut Uh, Social Security and Medicare. This sure is not a good idea before an election. And shutting down the government is both stupid and dangerous. And the Liz Truss experience, as our conservative colleague Henry Olson wrote this week, uh, should be a message to Republicans that using this kind of leverage that can endanger our credit rating as a country to cut Social Security and Medicare is a really bad idea. And George, I would love to get your thoughts as well on this. But in in answering the question, you've been a strong supporter of Ukraine. How worried are you by Minority Leader McCarthy's comments about, you know, Ukraine not having a blank check in the 118th Congress? Well, that's a, that's a, an anodyne statement from McCarthy. No one has a blank check for anything. The, the devil is in the details. EJ's right, the American people rightly support and celebrate what Ukraine is doing. For a a country running trillion dollar deficits, Ukraine is is the kind of change you find in in the sofa cushions. I mean, this is a tiny expenditure, what, $13 billion so far? Uh, It's a a rounding error on on current federal spending. So uh, I'm not that worried about it. Um, each of you, it, we've, we've seen stories that this week about how, on the one hand, Democrats are focused on abortion and threats to democracy, and Republicans are focused on the economy and crime. Is it either or, or is it all of those issues? EJ, you go first. Well, you know, I went out to uh, Ohio this week uh, and I was with Tim Ryan, who's running a very close race in a state that Trump carried by eight points against J.D. Vance. Now, some of that goes to J.D. Vance's weaknesses as a Republican candidate. 
But some of it goes to the fact that Tim Ryan is talking very aggressively about economic issues. He is a, he's, he's young on the young side, but he is an old fashioned labor Democrat uh, who talks a lot about unions, about working people, about wages, about jobs. And I just don't see how any party can leave aside economics. I've noticed this in other races. I looked at two swing seats uh, in Pennsylvania where the Democratic candidates know they've got to address uh, the economy. Up in New Hampshire, Maggie Hassan talks a lot about economic development. The Republicans are focused very hard on crime, on immigration, and on inflation. And if that's all voters are thinking about on election day, the Republicans are going to win. Um, the Democrats, the smart Democrats, are not leaving economics to Republicans, even as they want voters to think about abortion rights, gun safety, um, and other questions. George? Well, certainly inflation is, by an order of magnitude, the biggest issue right now, and crime is second. And those don't work for the for the Democrats. Uh, it, it does look awfully like trying to change the subject when they keep talking about uh, abortion. A venerable Democratic consultant of uh, friends to all of us, James Carville, has warned them that this is not the, a year in which you can just talk about abortion because that's not, uh, people are reminded at the gas pump and as they walk down the aisles of a grocery store, what the biggest issue for them is. Uh, I don't know, go back and say something about what EJ said. Any poll is only as good as your turnout model. Mm -hmm. And early results from early voting in Georgia indicate that people are rabid to get to the polls. Now, there's an old theory, and I think it's a false one, that high voter turnout is a sign of civic health. It's often a sign, as it is today, of low simmering anger and, and, and civic uh, unhealth. But it's going to be a large turnout, and, and we're going to see who that helps. I have a feeling both sides are, are going to turn out early. Uh, and if I could just uh, ride one of my little hobby horses here for one more minute, I, I am so opposed to the excessive reliance on early voting. Obviously, we want to make voting easy, but not as easy as possible. There are conflicting values here. Uh, we're going to have maybe 40% of the vote cast before election day. We're going to have millions of votes cast before the last debates are held in some of these, these uh, constituencies. It was rather nice to have a civic moment of election day when we all went out and did the same thing on the same day. Now we have election season and it extends through almost two months. And I, I think that's unfortunate. Okay, EJ, I was going to move on, but I got to get get your reaction to George talking about the, quote, excessive reliance on early voting. Well, I love the idea that if everybody had the day off and if everybody had the same work schedules and if everybody had the same freedom on Election Day to go vote without worrying about showing up late to work, uh, that'd be great. But people's work schedules are complicated, especially lower income people. Uh, and early voting in the 2020 election really worked to make it a lot easier for more people to vote. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, I'm a supporter of Australia's system of requiring everyone to vote. Someday, George and I can have a big argument about that. Um, uh. And they make it as easy as possible for people to get to the polls. 
And I think that's what we should do. And I think what small losses there are about what might happen at the end of a campaign uh, pale against getting everybody out as, as well as you can. Mm -hmm. George, let me uh, get you to talk some more about Georgia, um, because you um, you were in Georgia recently and you wrote a column about the race between uh, Republican incumbent Governor Brian Kemp and Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams. It's a rematch from four, four years ago. What did you find? Well, I found three things that were particularly interesting. One is how amazingly stable it has been in, in January of this year. Polls showed Mr. Kemp in a rematch with uh, Stacey Abrams about five points ahead. Polls today show him about five points ahead. So all the sound and fury uh, of the campaign is not moving many people. And that might be because not many people in America are movable these days. Second, I was struck by how much Mr. Kemp stresses, and it seems to be working for him, the fact that he made Georgia a leader in early escape from pandemic lockdowns of businesses and of schools. Uh, there is, a, I think, a simmering resentment out there about the learning loss people have suffered and the, the catastrophic effect this had on a number of small businesses that simply had no cash reserves and, and simply went away. And the third thing is Governor Kemp has shown how to handle Donald Trump. Trump, of course, has been in a towering rage against Kemp because Kemp refused to say that the 2020 election in his state was rife with fraud. Uh, Trump has repeatedly attacked Kemp and Kemp has repeatedly just ignored it. And uh, it, it turns out that ignoring Mr. Trump uh, works. <laughs> EJ, what do you make? What do you make of that? Because four years ago, when it, you know Kemp versus Abrams, you know bout number one when they squared off, um, she scored points by railing against then President Trump. What do you make of George's um, assessment that by Kemp ignoring Trump, he's neutralized him and helped himself? Well, I think that I think he has definitely helped himself. I, I was down there and I haven't been down this year. I was down there in 2018. Uh, Stacey Abrams is a great campaigner. Uh, she rallied people against Republican efforts to restrict access to the ballot uh, and against Donald Trump. Um, and she almost won that race. Uh, I think this year, uh, oddly, for everyone who says Trump's power in the Republican Party is overwhelming, and it clearly is in most primaries, I think the reason Kemp has a lead now that he didn't enjoy uh, four years ago is precisely because he stood up for Trump. And I think that's making it harder for Abrams, who is still a good candidate, uh, to get some of those suburban anti-Trump voters that she got the other time. Kemp has checked the box. No, I'm not a Trump supporter. Um, and also what Abrams is running into is a headwind this year. This is not the ideal year for a Democrat. She had a tailwind in 2018, which was a great uh, Democratic year. So in some ways, it's amazing she has stayed within five points uh, in this circumstance. Right. The, Kemp stood up to Donald Trump, not stood up for, for Donald Trump. Yes, um, EJ, right. you, you wrote to come back to the Ohio race and, and uh, Congressman Tim Ryan versus J, Republican J.D. Vance. Um, you, you wrote that you think that Congressman Ryan could flip the seat, that he could upset J.D. Vance. And I'm just wondering 
Why do you believe that? Because Ohio has been, it's a swing state, but it's been kind of reliably Republican, no? Well, yeah, it's become more Republican. Bear in mind, Barack Obama carried it. So this deep red, this deep redness is recent. Moreover, there's another senator from Ohio uh, whose name is Sherrod yes. Brown, who is a Democrat, who has appealed to blue collar workers. He's been critical of trade deals. Um, he talks incessantly, and I think that's a good thing, about the dignity of work. Uh, Tim Ryan is running as a Sherrod Brown Democrat, uh, and Sherrod Brown kind of Democrats do very well in that state. And that's why uh, Ryan has been running very, very close uh, in certain polls occasionally in the last couple of months ahead of J.D. Vance. It's also clear from the polling um, that uh, voters like Tim Ryan better than they like J.D. Vance, who kind of fell asleep on the campaign trail uh, after uh, uh, he won the Republican primary. And so I think the issue there is, will some Republican-leaning voters who really don't want to vote Democratic, vote for the candidate they like better, who's Tim Ryan, or will they vote for the candidate they don't like very much to vote for the Republican Party? And Vance's whole campaign, uh, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, Vance's whole campaign now is to get Republicans to vote Republican, even if it means voting for him. <laughs> George, what, what do you make of that? And what do you make of, of EJ's contention that Tim Ryan actually has a chance. Does he really have a chance from your perspective? Well, sure. I mean, he's he's not quite within the margin of error in the polls, but he's close enough and, and we'll see if, how much volatility there is at the end of this. Republican operatives have nothing, and I mean nothing good to say about Vance as a candidate. Uh, EJ said he went to sleep. They just think he's lazy and he's been mailing it in. And, uh, the degradation he inflicted on himself to get the nomination uh, mm -hmm. was such that he, Trump comes in and with Vance standing on the stage with Trump, Trump says, he's, he, Vance, would kiss my ass in order to get my support. And uh, I mean, it was Vance standing there. Uh, so it, it's hard to see if, if if Ohio has any appetite at all for dignity in public officials, and maybe that's a, a passe concern in, in modern American politics, it's hard to see how, how Vance uh, wins easily, certainly, or wins at all. You know, that's, a, that's an inter uh, Were you saying something, EJ? Sorry. No, no. Oh, I, I so that, that's an more. interesting dichotomy <laughs> here. You've got, um, on the one hand, Brian Kemp, ignoring Donald Trump, and it's helping him. But on the other hand, you've got J.D. Vance, as George was saying, standing on the stage, and and I don't even know how to describe it, uh, standing there while Donald Trump just humiliates, that's the word I'm looking for, humiliates him in front, in front of a, a, a crowd that's supposed to be there to support him. Do any of these things matter anymore? I, sometimes I, you know, I'm in the George Will school of, you know, just sort of being mystified by how much we have lost in terms of, of dignity and respect uh, for the political process and even candidates doing and saying anything in order to get elected, including being humiliated by someone who's supposed to be supporting you. 
You know, the first of all, that the uh, Donald Trump kiss comment has been central uh, since he made it to uh, Tim Ryan's campaign, uh, who has basically said, if uh, you know Vance won't stand up for his own dignity against Donald Trump, how can he stand up for you? And it's been a very effective appeal. And Vance has tried to say it was a joke, but it that doesn't work at all. I think this really is a test of whether Republican partisanship, and maybe partisanship in general, but I think this year, particularly Republican partisanship, overwhelms uh, what people feel about candidates. Uh, by any rights, Herschel Walker should not be in any contest against Raphael Warnock uh, down in Georgia. That should be over by now, but it's not. Uh, Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, uh, has been up to now a terrible candidate, yet he's still in the race. Um, I think what we're seeing is that for an awful lot of Republicans, whatever it takes and whoever it takes to get a majority, uh, they're willing to go down that road no matter what the candidate does. And we're going to find out on Election Day if that's the case. And George, on that question of candidate quality, let's say Republicans do retake the majority. If they do, there are going to be some questionable characters there. It could be Senator Walker. It could be uh, Senator Oz. Um, how much of a problem is that going to be for um, now minority leader Mitch McConnell? Not much. Uh, I, I think, by the way, Oz has become a, very, a really quite good candidate, very energetic. And I think uh, Oz is probably going to win because the Democratic candidate is, is uh, worse for health and other reasons. Uh, I don't think Mitch McConnell needs to worry about this. I mean, the House, the, the Senate may fancy itself world's greatest deliberative body, but it is tightly controlled by a small number of, of leaders. And remember, Herschel Walker would be 1% of one half of one of our three branches of government. Uh, senators are important, but not all that important, really. <laughs> EJ, do you have a view on this in the 90 seconds we've got left? Um, uh, vote for an abominable candidate because it doesn't really matter. It's a half of 1%. Uh, I. Um, I think that is exactly what a lot of Republicans are going to think in Georgia. That's what they clearly are thinking. They'd rather have the Republicans in control of the Senate, even if it means electing someone like Herschel Walker. Uh, and I think that's very disturbing. I don't think that would have been the case 15 or 20 years ago. Um, and I think there'll be a lot of discussion about this issue of candidate quality. And I just don't I don't just mean campaign skills. Uh, but I also mean character and how important that is uh, in our politics right now. And to your point, EJ, about power for power's sake, no one said it better than far-right conservative Dana Loesch, who said, quote, I don't care if Herschel Walker paid to abort endangered baby eagles. I want control of the Senate. <laughs> EJ Dion, George Will, we got to go. Thank you very much, as always, for coming to First Look. Have a good weekend. Great to be with you. Thanks for listening. To always stay up to date with the series, subscribe to Washington Post Live's First Look on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.